0: We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread his truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the word to resurrect among us so that heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back, listeners. It has been, a, it has been too long, um, honestly, since I've been able to get one of these podcasts. Let me just kind of fill you in a little bit. We are um, excitedly expecting our 11th um, child to be born in roughly about eight months, and it's kind of been a, a struggle the last month or two with some complications Jen's had. i I had to take her to the emergency room, and she's had, um, essentially, she had, like, onset early labor this is the best way she could describe it, in which her um, she was going through contractions, but those contractions weren't letting up. Um, there was no relief in between, and it was like that for probably about 30 or 45 minutes until I had to take her to the ER late at night, and we were there till 3 in the morning, didn't get any answers uh, as to what was going on, but the pain, thankfully, did subside and did go away, and since then, there hasn't been any complications, so we don't know exactly what's going on with that, but um, however... We are expecting our 11th, and as such, our, um, our small home that we built when we had four kids, never expecting we would ever have 10, um, is beginning to kind of burst a little bit at the seams, as some of you might be able to imagine. Um, we're thankful for it, but, um, as, as such, Um, because we're limited on funding and we're limited on, on the means to be able to accomplish everything that I've got going on in my life with ministry and with podcasts and with the family as large as what it is, as well as work and taking care of the property and taking care of a ministry building, um, all that stuff that is on my plate, um, it, you know, funding is not exactly something we have a whole lot of. So um, as such, I am in the process of also building a, just a small room for my oldest to kind of transition into. And, and as he moves out – and I'm, some of you might not even care about this, but I'm kind of giving you a backstory as I'm going to tell you a little bit moving forward how things are going to be. Um, and that's what I'm doing. So – He's going to transition out, just a small room, no bathroom, no nothing, because that's too too expensive. We can't afford that. Um, and it's just a small room for him to transition out. And then as he goes, then my next one, and this is in theory how it's going to work for me. Um, so as that, every moment and, and every minute that I've got coming up in the next month or two to be able to get this thing dried in um, is going to be spent on that building. So I say all that to say. I don't know um, how often I'm going to be able to do these podcasts. I'm not going to forsake it. I'm not going to just put it on the back burner and just be like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to make an effort um, to do podcasts as I've been doing them. However, there might be a week or two where I'm just not able to get to it. Um, It has been a busy season for me in the last month or two, Um, but I am going to try to do this. And if for some reason you know i 'm not able to then um, just know that i 'm not like canceling this podcast channel um, it 's just i 'm having a hard time get getting to um, all of this as I want to because, like I said, when I go through these i don 't try to just wing it i don 't try to just flippantly go through it. I really try to put a lot of thought and prayer into these. Um, and I really try to go over these thoroughly for you guys, which takes effort, takes time, takes diligence, and it and it just takes a lot of stuff that right now I'm having a hard time getting to. So, um, all that to say, as I talked about in a previous podcast, we are going to start in the a series in the book of Jude. Now, we're going to, to divvy it up in the first four verses and um, the first part of this because there is literally so much. I don't even know necessarily... What angle I'm going to take on this just yet because I've got so much to go over just in these first four verses. I love, love, love the book of Jude. Um, This is one of my favorite books to go over. It is one of my favorite books to study, to read, to teach on. And, And here's why for me is I think that it is so applicable for today's church. And that hopefully will, you'll kind of get a glimpse of that um, as I go through these first four verses, this might be a two part series, this might be a three part, might be a four part. There is literally so much to go over. So I'm going to try to keep this at about 30 minutes. Um, Those who I have taught for a long time over the years, they know when I say about 30, that probably means more like 40. Um, But I'm going to do my best to keep it in smaller segments, but to break this up into smaller parts. I encourage you to listen to the entire podcast series as it comes out. Don't think that you know everything about the book of Jude simply because you listened to part one where we covered four verses. Part one is going to set a precursor to kind of give an identity to what's going on before we get into more of exposing who these people really are that are creeping in unnoticed into the church. And that will make sense in a little bit. So with that, um, thank you for joining in. If this is your first time joining me, uh, as a podcast teacher, going through the Word, just know I'm not a fluff teacher. I'm not going to give you the things you want to hear. Uh, just as Paul talks, we've got enough of people in the church today who are going to scratch that itch that you got and going to fill you up your ears with stuff that's going to make you feel good about yourself. It's going to make you feel good about everything that's going on. Um, I'm going to teach the Word as it's written. And that, that means that it's going to be harsh sometimes. It's going to be to the point. And as I was talking to my daughter today as we are going through 1 Timothy chapter 5... There are some very point-blank things that I love you guys enough to tell you the hard truths because I don't want to see you falling under condemnation. And for those who think that that's not possible, I'm going to tell you that it is because if you are in Christ, you absolutely can still fall under condemnation if you choose to walk according to the flesh, all right? I am well aware of Romans 8.1. I would encourage you to go read it in the King James, to go read the subtitle that's there, the footnote that's there with verse 1 as well as including verses 3 and 4 into that. If you are walking in the spirit, you cannot come under condemnation. It does not matter. You will not fall under condemnation, but if you choose to venture off into the flesh and you choose to walk according to the flesh, then you absolutely can come under condemnation. Even if you are in Christ Jesus, because the verse in its fullness says, "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." That is a key thing to make sure that we equate into it. And if you don't believe me, then go look in First Timothy chapter five. It's going to say that widows who venture off and stray after Satan, believing widows can fall under. Condemnation. In James 5 it says let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one and it says that you can fall under condemnation. If you want a more uh, personal response to it, we can look at Paul and Peter. When Paul rebukes Peter in front of the Galatians because he was acting like a Gentile until the Jews came in and then all of a sudden he, re- he retreated from them. It says that he stood condemned. And so the premise is, is that if you choose to venture into the flesh and walk according to the flesh, you will reap what you sow in that. And as he says in Galatians chapter 6, if we sow to the flesh, we, um, well, what does he say in Galatians? Why did I just draw a blank? If we sow to the flesh, we we will reap corruption, I think is what it says. Let me turn to that real quick because now, for whatever reason, I cannot recall that. He says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And we will reap if we do not give up. So the concept is if you venture into the flesh, you are going to reap the product of that flesh. And that can be coming under condemnation. And that is actually going to be a great segue into what we're going to talk about today. And so, if you get your Bibles with me or turn with me to Jude and we're going to start in verse 1. He says, "Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James." Now, here that word for su- su- servant is the word doulos and it basically means a bond servant or one who comes underneath the authority of another person. Okay? It could be translated as bondservant, could be translated as a slave, or could be translated as an oarsman. If you don't know what an oarsman is, essentially an oarsman is somebody who um, has got the oars underneath the deck of a boat. Like think old school boat where they're actually, they don't have motors. All they have is people who are rowing in sequence, right, with one another at the command of the person who is the head oarsman. He's the one that's at the top who's giving the instructions, telling them what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And they stay in sequence with one another. And that's what makes the boat move. Well, no different for Jude. Jude is in sequence with the other apostles. He's in sequence with the other Christians. And as he's listening to the head, as he's listening to the instructor, as he's listening to the general, if you will, he simply is doing whatever he's told. And that's what this concept means. It's not just a servant who's like, oh yeah, I'll do it when I feel like it. It's no, if I don't do it, then I throw a wrench into everything. And that comes into play even off of that. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And so the concept that he's referencing even beginning is that, look, I'm telling you what my, um, my prerogative is in life is that I am an under oarsman or I am a, a slave unto Jesus Christ. Okay? And then he goes on, he says, and here's who I'm writing to. I'm writing it to the church, to those who have been called by God in Jesus Christ. Those who are beloved, who are loved by God, beloved. It's a term he even uses for his own son. He says, this is my beloved son. And we have that same title, that same endearment towards us as the church. And it is only for us as the church. The word beloved is used, I don't even remember how many times in the New Testament, but it is always used for the church, save one time in Romans, I believe, in chapter 9, when he calls the Jews beloved. That is the only time that the word of God indicates that anyone outside of the church is even beloved, and even that, there's parameters to it of what he even says. But he is writing this letter to his church. Jude, through the authority of Christ, by the hand of the Spirit, is writing this to the church. And here's what he says. I'm going to tell you, even in verse 3, when you, like right when, as he intros this, this is kind of the theme for my ministry. This is what I feel like God has put on my plate. This is what I feel like. There's times where I wish that I could be that warm, fuzzy preacher, because I could probably have a much higher following. There's times I wish... That, you know what, why, why do I feel such a burden for truth? Why do I feel such a burden for the church? To be pure as he is pure, to be holy as he is holy. Why is there such a burden on me when I look out and I see so many other people who are, they just seem so content to give messages of fluff to make people feel good. And their ministries are thriving. At least in an earthly perspective. But here's what he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Now this is a theme verse for my ministry because I would love to just sit back and just talk to people about our common salvation and just the blood of Christ and the, the mercy of God and the person of Jesus Christ. I just, I just want to just sit and just have conversations and just be so thankful and all this stuff. And I'm not saying that I don't or that I'm not thankful, but what I am saying is I find it more necessary to not just sit and, 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 and just wallow in the goodness of the common salvation that I have with other people, I find it more necessary to contend for the faith, to contend for truth, to contend for the integrity of the name of Jesus Christ and for the gospel that was once and for all delivered to us. Because there are people who are out there who are perverting truth, who are turning the grace of God into sensuality. There are people out there who are going unnoticed in the church. And people don't know the word of God enough to be able to discern the difference. And they are sheep being led to a slaughter. And so I'm, I'm on board with Jude in this. And I'm on board even with what he says in Colossians 28-29. through 29, Because Paul had the exact same type mentality. Listen to what he talks about in Colossians 1. Let me turn to it so I make sure I don't misquote it. He says this, for one, right after talking about making the word of God fully known, the mystery that's hidden for ages and now revealed to his saints, and he goes on in verse 28. Him we proclaim, meaning Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, look, I am going amongst the church, and I'm warning everyone and teaching everyone so that I can present everyone not just in Christ as a convert and leave them as an infant. He says, I'm going through, and I want to make sure that I present everyone mature in Christ. Kind of what Hebrews 5 talks about when he says, look, you've become hardened of heart. You no longer want to listen to truth You're infants because all you want to do is just feed on the milk. And he says, it's time you put that away and you start growing up. My heart mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ is to bring people to maturity. And by so in so doing, I've got to teach them the disciplines of the faith. I've got to teach them true doctrine, not this stuff that's being propagated today by many to teach them true doctrine. And though I would love to just sit and write about our common salvation and talk to you about our common salvation and how good it is to abide with Christ, I find it more necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith. All that is right and holy and true in accordance with Jesus Christ and the covenant that we have with God through Him. That's what the faith is and this word that's used there for um, contend I, I love this word it's epigona, epigona, oh my goodness i say i love this word i can't pronounce this word but i do love this word it's epagonazo go oh my goodness go i'm going to get there one day gonazomei all right it's it's actually this root word is agonazomei And all you do is just add an epa. I'm not sure why that was so difficult for me to interpret. But it's agonazeme is the Greek word and just put an epa in front of that. I'm not even going to attempt to try that one again. But here's what it means. It means a a struggle or to contend. An agonazeme is to compete as for a prize with strenuous zeal. He says, I'm not wanting to you to flippantly just go out there and to be like, Oh, yeah, you know, I don't really, I don't really agree with that, but that's okay. Let's, let's just agree to disagree. He's not asking you to go out there and just be content with not having contentions. The appeal that Jude is making here is I want you to go out there and I want you to, to um, compete As for a prize with strenuous zeal to struggle and to contend for the faith, all that is encompassed and embodied in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? No man comes to the Father but through me. That's what you contend for. The way of Christ, the truth of Christ, and the life of Christ. You go out there and you contend for those things. When people are slandering the integrity of the name of Jesus Christ or the doctrine of Jesus Christ that accords with godliness as we have revealed to us through the apostles in the new covenant. Then you contend. When people are preaching something from the pulpit that doesn't go, that doesn't fly and doesn't match up with the written word of God. And it's just the, the ramblings of men. The reasonings of men. You contend. Now certain situations... Determine a certain a different degree of contest uh, uh, of contestation that's there. How you contest and how you contend for those things, but nonetheless you contend. So I would love to have a podcast channel where I can just talk about all the the fluff. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying that the the quote unquote the fluff and understand what I mean by that. I'm just talking about the feel good things about God. The verses that everybody wants to memorize and put up on their mirrors and say, oh, he will never leave me nor forsake me. That's a beautiful verse when it's taken in context. Oh, he will work all things together for my good. And that's not actually what it says. It says he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. As you walk in the purpose you are given and as you love him above all things, it doesn't matter what it is. It will work according to a purpose. But if you don't fulfill the first two, then the, the latter will not be true for you. You see, all these verses, these cliche statements and these verses, people are just talking about these and filling themselves up with these. But the really hard truths, those are the ones people don't want to talk about. Those are the ones that I'm going to talk about. So though I would love to talk about all the, the feel-good stuff, I'd love to just sit and bask in that. I find it more necessary to contend for those harder elements of the faith that nobody seems to want to talk about. So that you can grow into maturity in Christ. So that's what Jude starts this book off of. And that's why it's so dear to my heart. Because it's so dear to my burden. That I feel God has placed on me. So let's get into what some of this is. As to why he feels the need to contend for the faith. That was once and for all delivered to the saints. He goes, oh, well yeah. That was once and for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4. And here's why. For certain people have crept in unnoticed Who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now there is so much to dissect in verse 4. I mean I I literally could probably have about an hour or two podcasts just on verse 4. If I took you in all the extremities of what God has shown me on this verse And this is why I said, I don't know exactly what direction he's going to take me in dissecting this verse for you today. So I'm just going to get into it and we're going to see where it goes. I am at 20 minutes right now. Again, trying to keep this at about 30 minutes and we're going to stop at verse 4. So I already know that for sure. So let's break this down. He says, I need you to contend for the faith because there are people who are slipping in among you. And they aren't just slipping in among you. They are going unnoticed by you. People who are sitting in among you, who who you might consider to be your friend. You might consider to be your brother or your sister. And they are right there with you. And you don't even realize that they are not pleasing to the Lord. You don't even realize that their life and their lifestyle and the things that they are declaring and speaking from their mouth are not pleasing. And why? Because you don't have your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish the difference between good and evil. That's exactly what he says towards the end of Hebrews chapter 5. And these people are creeping in unnoticed. So let's break down a little bit more of what these people are. I don't think that the term designated based off of the Greek word that's used there is prografo. It means written about or was foretold or painted a picture of. I don't think designated is the right word that that seems to imply that it's like, oh no, that God made that person to be condemned. And I'm well aware of Romans chapter 9. That's not going to be my topic today. But just know that I'm not a Calvinist. I do not believe that every single person is predestined against any kind of notion of free will. I think the Bible speaks very clearly to that not being the case. And when John Calvin brought that into um, doctrinal uh, belief in the late 1500s, that was completely new when he did. So for the first 1500 years, that wasn't something that was believed on in the church. It was only a recent four or five hundred years that people actually started believing in the concept of a a pre-elect or a, a predestination concept. The word here is not designated as if it were something that was predestined. I think it's something that God painted a picture of for us all throughout the Old Testament to know that as long as there is good, there will be evil. As long as there is right, there will be a wrong. And as long as there are people who are solely following after the Lord, there will be people who are not. That God painted a picture for us that he had written about it prior to. That it was foretold that there was going to be people who were going to try to um, persuade the church away from what is holy and right and true. You could even say that it was just simply tares among the wheat. People who are rejecting... I'm getting ahead of myself. So that's the first thing, okay? They're unnoticed. And it's something that has been foretold and written about prior to that. God says, I know that as long as there are people who are chasing after me, there are going to be people who are holding your coattails to hold you back. That's how it's going to be always. And he goes on, he says, ungodly people. Let me break this one down just briefly for you. This is the, the word asebes, it means irreverent and wicked. It's not just somebody who's wicked. It's, just, it's not just somebody who's doing the wrong things. It's somebody who is irreverent, who has no fear of God. Now, I want to keep it in perspective here. These are people who are coming in to your congregations. As he talks about later on, it says um, in verse 12, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds fruitless trees and late autumn twice dead uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever that doesn't sound good and these people aren't good and yet they're eating with you at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear so ungodly isn't just wicked people. Remember, these are people who are creeping in unnoticed, who are hidden reefs in the midst of the ocean. Think about how that causes destruction to boats. These are people who are creeping in unnoticed. So that means that they're not just out there living out that lie right for all to see in front of. Because otherwise they'd be exposed. We'd see through it. These are people who have a semblance of godliness, but they deny it's power. And that comes into play in just a little bit. They're professing to know God. But they deny Him by their works. In Titus 1.16 where he says it. So somehow these people are hidden and unnoticed. They're not being exposed. They're not being um, discerned or distinguished against. People are none the wiser to it. So there's at least an appearance that they have a form of Godliness. But he says, but they're ungodly, meaning they do not have a fear of God. And so let me just touch on that briefly. To have a fear of God, the Greek word that's used for fear in the New Testament is phobos. And it's where we get the Greek word or the English word phobia. Now phobos is a word that essentially means exactly what it sounds like. It is to have a phobia of something, a dread. To be terrified of. And a lot of people today are like, wait a second, no. I don't think that I have necessity to be terrified of God. He loves me. I'm his child. I shouldn't be terrified of my father, should I? Well, let me just tell you. What you think you should and shouldn't be and how you want to relate that in a physical sense has no bearing on anything. I go off of what is written. Verses like Philippians 2.12, when you understand what it actually means to fear God, verses like Philippians 2.12 begins to make sense when he says, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, why would he say trembling in accordance with fear? Because it's God. God. The self-existing one, the same one whose presence descended on Mount Sinai and said, You know what? If anyone touches this mountain, or if a beast touches this mountain, you will die. And the people told Moses, Moses, you go up there because we don't want to come close to that mountain because we are terrified at the presence of God. And he says, and that same presence lives in you, so you better not take it for granted. You better know who it is who lives in you. And these people who are creeping in, they don't have this fear. I was listening to a a pastor of a church we used to go to that literally taught from the pulpit. To fear God doesn't mean to actually be afraid of Him and terrified of Him. It just simply means to reverence Him. Well, let me just tell you, if you don't have the fear of God in the correct context, then you don't have the beginning of wisdom because that's what the Word says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we don't, as the church, understand what it means to actually fear God as it is written, not as we want it to be, then we don't have the beginning of wisdom. And how do we know that we're not part of that crowd that Jude's talking about here who we're creeping in unnoticed into the church because we talk a lot about the love of God, but we do not have an understanding of the fear of God. I encourage you, go research it. Go look at it. You can go look at all the times where he talks about bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I think it's 2 Corinthians 7.1. Maybe that's for... Yeah, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Where he talks about that. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says that we will we will give an account for everything we've done in the body, whether good or evil... On the day of Christ and then in the next verse he says, Knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others. Knowing that we will have to, as Christians, stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for everything we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Knowing that that's going to happen, we persuade others. Because it's not going to be a warm fuzzy moment same way as he talks about in hebrews chapter 10 26 to 29 you could even go through 31 where he says that if we go on sinning so the author includes himself he says we if we in the church the author includes himself if we go on sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries that doesn't sound warm and fuzzy He says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses under that old covenant, anyone who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. They were stoned to death outside the congregation. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, past tense, meaning that he was sanctified by that blood. It's irrefutable that this is referencing a believer. He says, how much worse punishment will be deserved by that person who has gone on sinning even though he now knows it to be sin? He said, there's no sacrifice for sins for that, but a fearful expectation of judgment. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you tell me, does the word teach that we're supposed to fear him as far as being afraid of who he is? I believe it does. And these people who are creeping in unnoticed, they don't. And he says that not only are they doing that, but they're perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's the deal. I believe that grace is not unmerited favor. Is there an aspect to it of unmerited? Yes. Prior to us coming into Christ... That grace was bestowed to us and we did nothing to to get God's hand to bestow it to us. Nothing. There was nothing that we did. He sent Christ of his own volition to be able to go and be the ransom for all of mankind. And it wasn't because of anything I did or didn't do. Though I could actually make an argument against that. It was because, yes, because I sinned. And if I was the only person who ever sinned in this entire life, I believe God still would have sent Jesus to redeem me. However, grace was extended to me. An opportunity for me to to overcome sin was extended to me apart from me. So in that sense, it's unmerited. However, you look at 1 Peter 5 and 5.6 where it says that he gives grace to the humble but rejects the proud. It's a very clear distinction as as well as going into Hebrews 12.14 that grace is merited. To To be freely extended to you was unmerited. But for you to grapple that grace to your account and then live in accordance with that grace and by that grace, which as Titus 2 says, trains us to live a godly life, that depends on your humility and your faith. If you don't express humility towards God and you don't express faith towards God, then grace will not be extended to you by God. And you'll be left to do things in your own strength. You see, we have a problem in our church today. We teach grace is solely just unmerited favor of God's means to overlook our sin. Oh, past, present, future sins are forgiven at the moment of salvation. God's grace has covered that. Let me just tell you, that's heresy. It's not biblical. Rather, the true grace of God is it's His power in you to overcome sin. Do you see the difference? The grace that's often taught today is God overlooking your sin. No, that's mercy. The grace that's taught through the word of God is God's power to overcome sin. For you to live above Sin, But you don't have to be burdened by your own weaknesses and, and all the stuff that we oftentimes go by. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians in a very popular passage. He says three times in chapter 12, uh, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. That this messenger of Satan that was, surrend- that was sent to harass him to make his life miserable. To make his life difficult. To provide hardships and persecutions and calamities. This thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about. Three times I pleaded, just as Jesus did for the cross. Three times he pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then he goes and identifies the thorn when he says, for the sake of Christ, then. So now he's identifying what he previously was writing about, what this thorn is. I'm content with weaknesses, which is a word that describes being weakened for the sake of the gospel. It's not flesh. It's not something that is sin. It is something that is when you are weakened bodily for the sake of the gospel. He says, I am content then with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Meaning that when the grace of God comes and overtakes your life, when you express humility and faith and contentment in what the Lord brings into your life, that grace will allow you to overcome sin, to overcome vices, to overcome temptations, to overcome, not simply to overlook when you don't. That's mercy. And here are these people coming in amongst the body. They don't have a full fear of God. They pervert what grace really is. And they turn it into a, hey, you know what? If you sin, it's okay because you know what? God covered that at the cross. Let me just tell you, I know of people right now in my head that I'm thinking of who have said almost exact things to that and it is in the church whether you want to see it or not there are people in the church who this is exactly what they're teaching and let me just tell you Jude says you need to contend against it these people are coming in and they're leading people astray maybe they're wolves in sheep's clothing or maybe they're just deceived sheep either way They're creeping in amongst the body and they're leading people away from the faith. All that is right and holy and true in accordance with the word of Christ and the example of Christ. And more than that, it says that they turn it into sensuality and they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just tell you this real quick. They do not deny him as savior. Notice the two terms that are used there. They are denying him as master and Lord. Now here's what's interesting. And this is, I think I'm going to kind of end it with this. And, and a story in number 16. The word that's used here for deny is arne um, omehi. And here's what it means. To contradict, to reject, to abnegate, or to refuse. Alright. The other word in the Greek that's used um, more prominently, as this one is, I think there's three total words in the Greek that are translated as deny, but the other one's only used once, I believe, in the New Testament. The, the other word that's used, like for instance in Mark eight thirty four, is the word apar neomehi. And it's just a slight difference of it, however, there is a distinction between it. This one in Mark eight thirty four means to have no acquaintance with, to deny utterly, or to disown. Alright? It, it's, it's the verse that says that Whoever wants to come after me must deny himself, right? You need to deny your wants, your desires, your passions, as Galatians 5.24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with this desire of the passions. You must deny, have no acquaintance with your old man. If you want to follow or imitate Jesus, then you have got to do it absent of the flesh. But the word that's used here, is not as much a denying an acquaintance with Jesus, it's denying the um, a rejecting and refusing to have to have a fellowship with Him as Lord. Do you understand what I mean by that? These people who are coming into the fellowships are not denying Jesus as the Savior. They're not denying Him as existing. They're not denying Him as Savior. They are denying having to be under Him as Lord. That's, That's what the Greek is implying here. So these people don't have a true fear of God. These people are turning the message of what grace truly is, they're turning it into sensuality or a license to sin. Lasciviousness is the word I believe that's used in the King James. Maybe it's licentiousness, but basically the exact same thing. They're essentially saying His grace covered that at the cross. There's no need to fear God. He loves us. He's our Abba. And they're denying the need to have to surrender to him as Lord, as an under-oarsman who simply rows and stops whenever the general says. As Jude talked about, a servant or a slave of the Lord Jesus. These people, whether they did it before or not, that's not the question for me in all of this. As we'll get into that in later passages. The point is, is these people are coming in unnoticed. And it's about time that the church stops accepting it. And we start contending against it. The story in number 16 is a story of Korah. And I'll end with this. <laughs> I'm right at 40 minutes. I'll make it quick. In number 16, Korah, who's actually cousins to Moses. Cousins. He's actually the cousin of Moses, which probably made it even more difficult for what took place. Korah comes up along with some of the, the high standing men in Israel, Or in, in as the Jews. Along with Dathan. And comes up and basically tells Moses. Hey you know what? You've gone too far as exercising your leadership and authority over us. Who puts you in charge over us? And I'm paraphrasing. Just go read it for yourself. And you'll see that I'm not paraphrasing out of context. He looked at everybody and says look we're all holy. You can put it in modern day terms and say. We've all been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. All of our past, present, future sins are wiped away. They're all done with. The grace of God has covered us through Jesus Christ. Who are you to tell us what to do? Who are you to say you're an authority over us? We're all holy. So Moses goes to God and basically says, God, what are we supposed to do? Because these guys are setting themselves up against me. And he goes to God and he says, God, what am I to do? And God says, look, here's the deal. I want you to separate from them. And I want, their husbands, I want their wives, I want their children, I want their possessions, I want their livestock, I want everything separated. I don't want any of it to touch my people. You separate them and you get back. And I'm going to cause the ground to open up and swallow them alive. Now I'm not advocating that we do that to these people. Who are creeping in unnoticed. Who have um, a lessened fear of God. Of what we should. People who are changing the message of grace. I'm not saying that we're doing that. What I am saying. Is that as he says in Revelation. I believe it's 19. When he talks about fallen, fallen, fallen as Babylon the great. He says something. Come out of her my people. Separate and touch no unclean thing. As he says in 2 Corinthians 6. Then I will welcome you. What fellowship does light have with darkness? The point is, is that we separate, just as Paul talked about with Philetus and Homagenus, whenever he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he says that I have cast them out to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, so that the rest may learn not to blaspheme. People who are doing this intentionally, who have no desire to repent, who have no desire to come into the truth of the word of God, You separate from them. You contend against them so that what they are teaching and spreading does not spread like gangrene, but is squelched and stopped from affecting the purity of God's beloved. Christian, I am urging you to in a biblical manner of how to conduct it because there is a difference between a wolf in sheep's clothing and a sheep who is just simply deceived by the wolves. And there's different ways we handle that. But in accordance with truth, as you are led by the Spirit of God, in accordance with the Word of God, you and I need to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered. And stop letting these people spread the lies and lead God's beloved astray. God be blessed.